morning. So today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 7 through 20. And you can follow along on page 6 of your bulletins um, if you'd like. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food is for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. on time. Congratulations. All right, we're continuing in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're picking up on a piece of last week's reading and study on the topic of lawsuits among believers and continuing in the rest of the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. But before we move forward, let's pause and let's pray. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, please come. And even as we ask you that, we, we're, we're uh, filled with hope because we know you're not a reluctant savior. You, you're not uh, one who dwells amongst broken, sinful people like us reluctantly. You love drawing near to us. And so we draw near to you and your word. And we ask that you would come and pry open our hearts, give us clarity of thought, uh, give us uh, hearts that are prostrate before you. You deserve it. You deserve us, our lives. We pray that you would um, speak truth and grace. We pray that you would uh, show us the love of Jesus in new ways that we maybe have never seen before. So speak now. Your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
researchers from the University of Buffalo reviewed more than 40 years worth of cover images that were published by a popular magazine. And what they found in this study was that in the 1960s, 11% of men and 44% of women on these covers were sexualized. But in the 2000s, 17% of men and 83% of women were sexualized. Of course, you don't need, I don't need sociologists to tell you that sexualized, hypersexualized representations of both men and women, but especially of women, have become more common over time in our culture. We know that just by personal experience. We are surrounded by sex and sexuality, not only through images, but also in the music that we enjoy, in the news headlines that we read, in political conversations that we chat over, and more now than ever. But here's the thing, and I think this is what's worth noticing, that despite that increase across our culture, that doesn't mean that church communities are generally talking about sex and sexuality any more than they have in the past. It doesn't necessarily mean that churches are talking about this topic with more openness or more frequency. So today's your big chance, right? As we come across this section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he addresses the church's confusion over sex and sexual immorality. Some of you are so glad that you came to church today. Uh, others of you are wishing that you had forgotten to set your clocks forward, right? But here we go. What I want to take as our starting point as we look at this passage is the Bible's starting point on the topic of sex. And that starting point we actually discover when the Apostle Paul writes this in verse 16, for it is said the two will become one flesh. There he's quoting from Genesis 2.24, which explains the beginning of marriage. And in fact, in Matthew 19.4-6, Jesus himself quotes from that very same passage in Genesis, and together with another one, Genesis chapter 1.27. When he says, this is Jesus, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. See, it's here that we learn about God's intent for sex. And what's interesting is that's what apparently is in the apostle's mind in the backdrop of his thinking as he proceeds to teach about sex and sexual immorality. You see, because we can't understand sexual brokenness without first understanding what the Bible says about sexual wholeness. 
And again and again, the New Testament points us to Genesis 1 and 2, from which we learn two important things. First, that sex was created by God. Christians, let's admit it, can often make it sound like the Bible is disapproving of sex. In actuality, the Bible describes it as a gift, and a gift with a twofold purpose. Procreation, as God commands the first couple to be fruitful and multiply, and also unification, which is to say that sex expresses and deepens the intimacy that's shared between a husband and a wife. Sex deepens their union. The two become one, not only physically in flesh, but also relationally and emotionally and spiritually. And this is why sex was created to be shared exclusively in the context of marriage vows. See, we give our bodies to one another only after we've also given our hearts, given our possessions, given our freedom, our time, our bank accounts, our future itself. See, we get naked and vulnerable physically only once we've gotten naked and vulnerable with our whole selves. As Christian author Philip Yancey has put it so helpfully, marriage provides the security that we need to experience sex without restraint, apart from guilt and danger or deceit. Teenagers worry that they will miss out on something if they heed the Bible's warnings against premarital sex. Actually, the warnings are there to keep them from missing out on something. Fidelity sets a boundary in which sex can run free. This is why the Bible defines sexual sin or sexual immorality, a phrase that you find in verses 13 and 18, as any and all sexual activity outside of the blessed security of marriage. The second thing we learn about sex from verse 16 and its Genesis background is that marital and sexual union was originally built around sexual difference. Again, Jesus, quoting this passage in Genesis, said, The Creator made them male and female. The man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. You hear these references again and again to sexual difference. Male and female. Man and wife. Because it is in their complementarity that husband and wife will find their unity. Men and women are made, the Bible tells us, to be counterparts to one another, relationally, physiologically, even chromosomally. This is reinforced by the New Testament's insistence that marriage was designed to be a glorious picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And if that's to be so, then we need to see in that picture the sacrificial union, the loyal love 
between two different and yet complementary persons. And so you can see how this aspect of the Bible's vision of sex has implications for homosexuality, which we'll talk about in just a second. But to summarize, our starting point for any understanding of sexual brokenness is to understand the Bible's vision for sexual wholeness. Sex, friends, is a gift from God. It was designed to flourish within the secure bounds of the marriage covenant as an expression of a couple's deepening unity that's built around their gendered complement. And it's in this context that we need to understand what, what the Bible says about these two subjects that we'll look at now. What it says about sexual intimacy between any two people outside of the covenant of marriage and about sexual intimacy specifically between two people of the same sex. That's what this passage unpacks for us. Let's take a look at each. So first, sexual intimacy between two people of the same sex. Here's what verse 9 says. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And of course, the phrase that many have Debated even among some of you perhaps in this room is that phrase there, men who have sex with men. And you may know, may not know, that that's actually a translation of two Greek words, malakos and arsenakotos. And the second term there is actually more straightforward. It's easier to understand what it means. It generally means men who lay in bed with men. Pretty straightforward. But the first term we find in ancient Greek literature, it's sometimes used for young male prostitutes, uh, sort of a call boy. It was a popular custom practice that you would find in Corinthian and Roman society. And so this leads some to argue that Paul isn't actually talking about homosexual relations in general, rather he's either talking about the immorality of prostitution, in which case then committed monogamous gay relations would still be permissible, or he's focusing on the abusive pedophilic relationship between men and boys, in which case then same-sex intimacy between two consenting adults would still then be permissible. That's the reason for the debate, at least as it applies to this passage. But there is broad agreement among scholars, not unanimous agreement, but significant agreement, that the two terms, when used together, refer to, on the one hand, the passive partner in a relationship, and on the other hand, the active partner in male homosexual relations in the first century without any specific reference to male prostitution or pedophilia. There's solid linguistic grounds for understanding that Paul is talking more generally 
about same-sex sexual activity. And in fact, we see that that reading is confirmed by the way that the Bible consistently speaks about homosexual activity as sinful in places like Leviticus 18.22 and Romans 1.26-29, not to mention the Bible's broader vision of the purpose and design of sex and marriage that we just discussed a few moments ago. Again, as we sort through these challenges of interpretation, we need to keep in mind that the biggest question isn't simply what are all the different possible uses of this term found in ancient Greek literature to find ways that perhaps this might be used in this passage, but rather the key question is how did Paul mean it to be used? How did all the biblical authors together intend these ideas to be understood? And that was, in fact, the same point that was made by Lewis Crompton, a queer studies scholar who actually himself identifies as gay. In his book, Homosexuality and Civilization, he writes, however well-intentioned those alternative translations might be, Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. In other words, you might believe that it's permissible based upon your personal ideology, but you're hard-pressed on a historical basis to argue that from the text of Scripture itself. But as we explain these things, two additional, important additional points of clarification need to be made. First, this passage makes no room for elevating same-sex sin above all others, or for creating a false hierarchy of sins. Do you notice how in verses 9 and 10, Paul actually lists off there, it's a long list, 10 different sinful dispositions. Four of those refer to various types of sexual sin common in the Corinthian culture, and only two of which, which as we just saw, actually function as a single idea, only two of them involve same-sex relations, and these receive no greater emphasis than the other eight. Same-sex sin is not the only sin, nor the worst sin, according to Scripture. In fact, as commentator Anthony Thistleton points out about these verses, constraints are laid upon heterosexual desire and upon desire for ever-increasing power and possessions as much as same-sex relations. There's no room for elevating same-sex sin over all others or for creating a false hierarchy of sins. According to the Bible, gay, straight, we are all sexually broken and all prone to sexual temptation and sin and all in need of the grace of Christ. 
So no one can approach these issues of sexuality from any kind of position of moral superiority. And yet, tragically, that's precisely what the church too often has done. Singling out members of the LGBTQ community while just shrugging at heterosexual sins, even in the church, whether if that's sexual promiscuity or if it's addictions to pornography or the wanton neglect of cases of sexual abuse that deserve so much more care and attention. The church too often being apparently blind to its own hypocrisy. And Christians have done so to the point of even dehumanizing our gay and lesbian neighbors and friends, which include some of you. And so I, we need to say, please forgive us for our arrogance, for our hypocrisy. Because followers of Christ should be the first ones to protect and promote the dignity and worth of our gay and lesbian neighbors who are, based upon this very same Bible, made in the image of God. And even when there might be moral disagreements, that Christians must be ones to acknowledge in our neighbors' relationships the sincerity of their love and the strength of their mutual commitment, which we've got to admit in many cases are better examples of loyalty and mutual care even than their heterosexual counterparts, let's be honest. And we must strive with all of our might to make our church, this place, a place of refuge for our LGBTQ neighbors, a safe place where people can come and hear about the saving love of Jesus. A community that refuses to reinforce superficial cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity that is so exclusionary and marginalizing to people left and right. A community that resists all kinds of sexual self-righteousness, again, because we know humbly before the love of Jesus, that we are all sexually broken and all desperate for the grace of God. We want to be that sort of community. I want to be in that sort of community, don't you? And here's a second point of clarification. This passage calls for a change in behavior for those who are in Christ. After that catalog of sins that we just read a second ago in verse 11, it says this, and that is what some of you were. Now understand that may, but doesn't necessarily refer to Corinthian Christians whose sexual orientation had shifted. See, because God neither promises nor demands of gay individuals an immediate change of sexual orientation. 
but scripture does point to a change in sexual behavior. No one chooses same-sex desires or other sex desires for that matter, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, a Christian can choose to say no to sin. And some of you, by God's grace, have made that choice. Turning away from a sexually active lifestyle and refraining from acting upon your same-sex desires. Not in order to receive the love of Christ, but rather because you have received love from Christ. And to others, it might just sound even a little bit nuts, but those of you who've chosen this out of love of Christ, you agree with Wesley Hill, also a celibate, same-sex attracted Christian who wrote these provocative words. Imitating Jesus, he says, conforming my thoughts, beliefs, desires, and hopes to his, sharing his life, embracing his gospel's no to homosexual practice, I become more fully alive, not less. According to the Christian story, he writes, true Christ-like holiness is the same thing as true humanness. To renounce homosexual behavior is to say yes to full, rich, abundant life. And so, dear brothers and sisters who've made this choice to others, you might sound nuts, but I say to you, you are heroes. As you take up your cross daily, you are models of faithfulness, models of perseverance, models of self-sacrificial, even suffering, love for Christ. The truth is, if the rest of us took God's word even just a bit as seriously as you do about our own sexuality, we wouldn't be so surprised by your obedience to Christ. So keep pressing on. We need you. We need you to instruct us, to show us the way of the cross. We will walk with you. We will be your family, the family of Christ. But most of all, hear this passage when it reminds you today from verse 11 of these things, dear brother, dear sister. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You have put your faith in Christ, and so you were washed. And that's not just a promise of forgiveness, you know. It's also a promise that Jesus covers all your shame. You were sanctified and justified, which means set apart as pure in the sight of God. You are pure in the sight of God. Set apart as special in the heart of God. 
not unwanted, but chosen and beloved. And all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle says, which means you've been given a new identity. The name of Jesus defines who you really are. You know this. You are more than your sexuality. Some of the temptations may remain, but your identity has radically changed in Christ. Grab a hold of the gospel today. Renew your strength to persevere in faithfulness today. All of us together, will you see the cross of Christ afresh today? It might change your life. He might change your choices. This passage tells us about sexual intimacy between two people of the same sex, but it also addresses sexual intimacy between two unmarried people of whatever sex. We're going to move through this one pretty quickly. Sexual immorality, again, is any sexual activity outside the context of marriage, but how does Paul warn against sexual immorality? You might have noticed he doesn't do it by diminishing sexual pleasure, but rather in the most fascinating way by exalting the human body. Everything in the remainder of this passage from verse 12 on down again and again and again makes reference to the body. Why? In verse 13, Paul quotes a slogan, you might have seen it, that had become popular in the Corinthian church. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. First of all, the Corinthians were believing that, you know, sexual desire, it's a natural appetite, and it just needs to be fed. You know, why would you put any constraints on it? Just like when you're hungry, you eat food in the same way when you're sexing, you sex. That's just what you do. But relatedly, it reflects a belief that the body is not much more than just discardable junk. God will destroy them both. That, of course, is not actually the view of the Bible, but rather the view of ancient Greek culture at that time. It was a time and a place where in the ancient world they believed that the spiritual Uh, The emotional, the mental, those things are good. Those things are the real you. But bodies and physical stuff, bad, inferior, it's just all going to burn up anyway. There's no way that any of that stuff lasts. And we find this same view even today. We're not ancient Greek people, but our Western mindset has been infiltrated by a similar set of assumptions. Because we really believe that our true selves are defined wholly by our desires and our feelings, not by our bodies. We believe that the body is separate from our personhood. That our identities have nothing to do with our physical makeup. So therefore then, what you do with your body sexually doesn't have any connection with who you are as a Person, You hear the language all the time. Sex is just purely physical. That's all that it is. Physiology and biology don't matter. Sexual identity is just a matter to us 
of the mind, of identity, of our desires, but it has nothing to do with our physical constitution. Nancy Piercy, who's a wonderful thinker and teacher, has written this provocative book called Love Thy Body, and she writes this. This is sex cut off from the whole person. Sex has an exchange of physical services between autonomous, disconnected individuals. We tend to think sexual hedonism places too much value on the purely physical dimension, but in reality, it places a very low value on the body, draining it of moral and personal significance. In the biblical worldview, sexuality is integrated into the total person. But this is what we do. We treat ourselves like fragmented human beings, disembodied, soul and spirit and body ripped apart violently. We're killing ourselves. And we see it in the way in which we treat our own sexuality. We are living a disintegrated, fragmented humanity which is why the apostle stresses the importance of your body all throughout the latter part of this passage. He tells us your bodies are immensely valuable in the sight of God. Gives us at least six propositions, arguments, for why this is so. Verse 13, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body is meant for Jesus. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Your body is not disposable to God. How do we know? He not only raised Jesus physically from the dead, but the whole course of human history is headed towards a future where God will redeem and restore all of creation, including our bodies, for all of eternity. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? You know, your bodies, Paul says, have the dignity of being the physical representations of Christ himself in this world. What an incredible function. Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. In other words, your bodies have this incredible power to form spiritual, even covenantal bonds. Your body is the portal to some of the deepest spiritual cement that there is. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Your bodies are the physical home of God. Your bodies are the physical home of God if you are in Christ. Right then, there, your thing is where the people of this world will meet the God of the universe. And in verse 19, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Your bodies belong to Jesus, not just your soul, not just your mind, not just your feelings. Your bodies belong to Jesus. Because they were purchased by nothing less 
than the precious blood of Christ. And so, Paul says, stop treating your bodies like crap. That's Greek. No, that's not Greek. Christianity that holds, Christianity holds that body and soul together form an integrated unity. We tend to demean the body as just irrelevant to our personhood. In hookup culture, we almost tend to see the body is something to be liberated from. Don't let it hold you back. But we are literally dehumanizing ourselves. Because if our bodies don't have any inherent value, then a key part of our humanity is being crushed. So of all the ways that Paul could go about making this argument, what does he do? He says, flee from sexual immorality. Why? Don't you want to be whole? Don't you want to be a full, true human being? Don't you want to bear not just soul and mind and feeling, but even your physical bodies, all of you that God has made, because all of you is glorious. All of you in Jesus' name was worth rescuing, and all of you will live forever for all of eternity in communion with Christ. God loves all of you. Won't you start doing the same? Love your bodies. It's a call to personal integration, reconnecting our bodies with ourselves, as it were, healing us of this self-alienation and fragmentation that in our modern era we just accept as being normal humanity. No, no, says the word of God. Don't you want to be whole? Piercy says this, the biblical view of sexuality is not based on just a few scattered Bible verses, it's based on the teleological worldview that encourages us to live in accord with the physical design of our bodies. By respecting the body, she says, the biblical ethic overcomes the dichotomy separating the body from person. It heals self-alienation and creates integrity and wholeness. The biblical view leads to a holistic integration of personality. It fits who we really are. Don't you want to be whole? Don't you want to be human? Don't you want to be who you really are? So flee sexual immorality. And sign on to sexual wholeness as God has given this gift to us. Friends, many of us have stumbled and fallen in many different regards without even having to enumerate them one by one. But you need to know the promise of the gospel here today. You, if you are in Christ, 
you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified, you have been given a new name, a new identity. You are not your sexual sin. You are not your sexual mistakes and failures. You are not your sexual brokenness. If you are in Christ, you are one whose name is named by Jesus. You are one who belongs to him. You have been bought with a price. You are redeemed and renewed, body and soul. Dear friends, don't you want to be whole? Let's pray. Jesus, show us what this means. Show us what this means. And work out all these implications, not only for our sexuality, but all parts of our humanity as we learn what it means to live in light of your good news. So please come, Holy Spirit, and change our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.